Welcome to Breaking Form, a podcast of poetry and culture. I'm Aaron Smith. And I am James Allen Hall. For those listening for the first time, we do this show in segments. We do literary games. We revisit books that we love. We gossip. We do. We interview. We shade. We laugh. And we are not for everyone. I hope everyone enjoyed the best supporting actress, Smackdown. But we are here with the literary part of the interview with Manuel Munoz. What's fun is we're doing this intro after we got to spend time with Manuel at AWP, who is a rock star. If you want to walk somewhere, don't walk with Manuel because you're going to get stopped, which was great. <laughs> I, I, I love seeing people like give him the love because he's such a cool and gentle and smart person. And, you know, I, one of my students was like, oh, you know, like, give me some advice about like how to succeed in life. And one of the pieces I said, like, first of all, you're asking me suck a lot of dick. Um, (laughs) Like like, you lost your car keys inside it. (laughs) Right. Oh my God. I love that clip anyway. But one of the things I said was don't believe your own hype. And I really just feel that like Manuel never like may appreciate like the, the things that you know, the rewards he's gotten or the nice things that people say about him in, in glowing reviews for the consequences, but he just never lets it inflate his ego. You know, he's an artist. He's an artist and that's why he does it. And that's, I think that's why we're friends, honestly, like all Absolutely. three of us. Absolutely. And so tell everybody who didn't get a chance to listen last week about his bio, and then we'll get to the interview. Manuel Munoz is the author most recently of The Consequences, which came out in October of 2022 by Grey Wolf. And The Consequences is currently longlisted for the 2023 Aspen Words Literary Prize and the 2023 Joyce Carol Oates Prize. And I can't believe I said her name without choking. <laughs> it was also longlisted for the 2022 Story Prize. Manuel is also the author of two other short story collections, Zigzagger and The Faith Healer of Olive Avenue, which was shortlisted for the Frank O'Connor International Short Story Award. His novel is titled What You See in the Dark. So when you hear me make a reference to that being funny at the end, that's what is happening. (laughs) Funny-ish. Right. Funny for me, maybe. Uh, Manuel Munoz is the recipient of fellowships from the National Endowment for the Arts and the New York Foundation for the Arts. He's been recognized with a Whiting Writers Award, three O. Henry Awards, and an appearance in Best American Short Stories. A native of Danuba, California, and a first-generation college student, Manuel graduated from Harvard University and received his MFA in creative writing at Cornell University. He currently lives and works in Tucson and teaches in the creative writing program at the University of Arizona. I finished reading your book last night. I I loved it. I I got to read I read it like all week just like a story at a time. It's so great. You must be so proud. Are you so happy? I am. I'm very happy and I'm very proud because it was a long time between books. It was 11 years between books and and it took a while to, you know, just to get all the stories done and arranged and, and published the way I want them. I wanted them to be. 
can I ask you why you think it was 11 years? Because James also went through 11 Ten years, years. Yeah. 10 years. Yeah. Something, oh, really, James? Was, a decade, something like that. Yeah. Yeah. Well, I, uh, for me, it was just having to weather big periods of doubt. I, I don't know. I just, I got in my own head about questions of audience and my relationship to my writing community um, and how to answer to some things or not answer to some things. And, you know, I just, every time I would start a story, I would just really overthink it. And um, I got it kind of got in my own way, not to mention, I didn't have a good relationship with Algonquin. So I think once that publishing relationship was over, it did kind of open the door for me a little bit to say, okay, I could, breathe a little bit and realize maybe I'll start somewhere else. Um, but it just, it took a long time. Did yeah. you know it was going to be stories that you worked on next? Yeah. And I have a feeling that um, I'm, I'm edging closer and closer to saying that's what I want to do from here on out. Mm. I, I, I wouldn't mind being a story writer and working only in the story form because I, I just realized that's my, that's the way my mind works. It works in the minuscule and the compressed, and I really enjoy that. Um, and also, the I understand the stakes. I know that publishers don't want short short story collections, um, but I don't care. <laughs> I really don't care. I do you, like, that's what I want to do. That's what I want to do. Do you know what maybe ruined you? And one reason we wanted to have you on the show is that you read so much poetry that maybe <laughs> maybe you've learned bad habits from from poets and um everything you're saying i'm like oh poor you you know <laughs> <laughs> poor prose writer from the but the but it's interesting yeah. even even the way you say it and i feel like it's the way we say it you're like to be only a short story writer like mm-hmm. because you know the literary demands it seems like you feel like well when are you going to write another novel like we always get that that's a poetry book that's great but when are you going to write a, a like a real book like i've heard even that so, but Alice Monroe, I mean, isn't she one of the few short story writers who just writes, who just writes short stories, who only yeah. write short stories? Yeah, I mean, but. Alice Monroe, Deborah Eisenberg. I want to say David Means. I'm trying to think if David Means wrote a novel in there somewhere. But, I mean, there there are writers. Stuart Dybeck, you know, I think of as a short story writer almost exclusively. So, you know, people do it. Um, it's just that, you know, there there aren't as many as you would think. But. I love the short story and I, in fact, prefer sh- stories to novels. A novel is a commitment. It's like a, it's like an uh, American spirit cigarette. Like you just, have to, <laughs> you just have to sit there and sit there and sit there and fucking smoke it, you know? And if someone learned it to you, it's worse because you might just let it burn if you're by God. yourself. Yeah. You just get <laughs> sick on it. Yeah. No, but short stories, you can read like one a night. You can savor it. You can think how they connect. There's just a different way of reading. It's like James's favorite deck. <laughs> it's savor it. <laughs> just have um, ten, 10 different ones to see. Like. I, see, now we're speaking my language. <laughs> I will say I, I do love short stories and I got to teach them at my previous institution. But I will say sometimes they give me anxiety because I get nervous starting over. Like I get nervous trying to think about the character, like, okay, who's this person? What's their deal? Like I've always felt that. But I I, I will say not just because you're with us. I didn't feel 
that kind of anxiety with these. And I'm wondering, like, I guess I want to know what your relationship is to your characters because they feel so lived with. Don't you think so, James? Like they feel like they've been in your brain for a very long time, whether they're people who have, you know, based on some reality and they're people that have sort of touched your, you know, your brain at somewhere or they're just people that have come to you, but talk a little bit about character and your relationship Um, to them. Yeah. I mean, I do. uh, It, I think one of the reasons I take such a long time with stories is that I sort of need to let them form in my head before I even try to put them on the page. I'm not a huge fan of writing and sort of thinking about how a surprise is going to happen. I kind of need to know the intricacies before I attempt it. That's part of it. I think I just start to visualize who those characters are. And it, you know, once it becomes time to write, it actually becomes pretty easy. Um, that sounds really strange um, because the the period of waiting is so long, but almost almost to a T, the the ten stories, the first iteration was pretty close to what the last one was going to be. I, I go through about three to five drafts for each one, but only in maybe one or two do I ever really really tear a story apart because the characters are so already well-shaped in my mind that it's just a matter of trying to give them move, like room to move around. The first story, Anyone Can Do It, feels exactly that way. It felt like it was written in a piece. And then a story like towards the end, I'm probably going to fuck up the title. Is it the pink house at the end of the street? On the, on other, the side other side of town. Of town. Mm-hmm. Yeah. That felt like a story that maybe you waited and played with because the ending sort of skips around to various people. Well, that was one of the last stories that I had written. And my my agent had gotten to the point of frustration with me. Really? He said, Listen, you're, you're so close to finishing. You really need to come on. You know, you're a couple more. And he, he told me none of them are going to go out anymore until you finish this book. Um, so I think Pink House was the next to last story that I had finished. And by that point, I said, you know, you can just do whatever you want with the story. And so it has a, you know, strange little sections and it decides to jump around as much as it wants. And it doesn't necessarily have like a choral narration, but you feel that the story is coming from lots of different knowledges, you know, like and the way that a neighborhood would kind of tell a story if it got a chance to do it collectively. And that's sort of fun to do. You grew up in Fresno, mm-hmm. right? And, near and Fresno. Like, yeah, near, near Fresno. Fresno. And your stories take place near Fresno and around Fresno. And I think of like Jane Ann Phillips, who's from West Virginia, whose life is very much not West Virginia, but how she always goes back to that landscape and those people. What is it I think that Obviously, we all know why we write things, but you've lived other places. Why do you think you don't have like the New York City story? Like, what is it that that brings you back to these characters that you love so much? That what is the intimate? Maybe it's intimacy. You know, maybe it's a dumb question. But no, it's not a dumb question. I, it's you know, it's I don't have history, longevity, roots. Um, I don't have the pain of watching a a, a place change over time. I had a little bit of that in New York, 
you know, but it, it felt silly. Like, oh, that coffee shop's no longer there. <laughs> Big fucking deal, you know. But in my hometown, you know, the when the TGNY goes, uh, so do all those sounds of, you know, the wooden floorboards and, you know, the the room or the station at the back where my grandmother would buy fabric. Like, all that's gone. But that's, to me, very imbued with um, particular emotions that I can really easily tap. I just wondered if you could talk about like poetry and how that's influenced your your approach to telling stories too. Yeah, I I, I will say I I used to read a lot of poetry. Um, I mean, James, you've said this to me before, and I've tried to get like an answer from you. Like, what makes you say that? What makes you say that? Because I take it as a very high compliment, um, especially when I lived in New York, and you remember this store. Aaron, the Barnes and Noble that was on Lincoln Center. Mm-hmm. You remember that one? I loved weekends just going to Central Park with the New York Times, sitting there, drinking a cup of coffee, and then afterwards going to that store. And they had a pretty great poetry section, I remember. And not that I could afford to buy books, but I, you know, you could stand there and read a yeah. volume if you wanted to. And if I was so moved, then I was like, okay, we'll buy this because you might want to keep reading this. Um, so that I think that was part of it. It was very helpful for me because um, I walked to work to read a poem or two and meditate on it. And I, I really kind of hate that word, but that's really what it was. I it's Poets do things that I don't think fiction writers, prose writers can do easily. They're incredibly powerful. Um, moments and so i would think about how that's being done as i walk over to my job across town and it would absolutely help me write a story because it's i'm trying to think of um how to immediately start uh a scenario musically you know sonically um all of those things started to help it it changed when i moved to tucson because i didn't have the benefit of walking anymore and that was, you know, that was important. I mean, I could go hiking here, but I'm scared of rattlesnakes. So, ew, ew. <laughs> yeah, I mean, I'm not a desert person in that regard. So how did you two become friends? I just started going to AWP. It might have been my second one. And I remember going there and coming back very excited because it was the first time I'd ever been about around other writers um and people would seem genuinely interested in getting to know each other it was super cool mm. so when i went to the next one and there was a gathering of queer poets i want to say what is it a hotel bar mm. and i recognized some by face and i and some by hole <laughs> well <yeah. laughs> I know that see, ass anywhere. He can see it through their jeans. I know that hole anywhere. Yeah. <laughs> oh my god! Oh lord! <laughs> I went over and just you know tried to start a couple conversations, and um, I just felt a lot of standoffishness. It wasn't a, a, a whole lot of interest. It basically it's like, who are you? What what are you doing here? And I don't know how we started to, I don't know if you noticed it, Aaron, or, but you made you know, a pretty um, 
a pretty obvious attempt to like include me and and talk to me and make sure that I was sort of in the circle, um, which I deeply appreciated. And that's how we became friends. I was like, oh, yeah. And I, I didn't know who you were. Um, I, I knew your name because our mutual friend, Mario J. Roman, who just finished his PhD in fashion history and so cute. It looks so stylish all the time. Um, he had taken your author photo for Zigzagger. So oh, Mario and I had talked and he, and he said something about my friend Manuel has a book. And then like when you came over, I was like, oh, you know, and we ended up speaking. But then it's funny when you mentioned the Lincoln Center Barnes and Noble. That is the first place that we met in New York to visit. We sat outside across the street and you signed your book for me. So we didn't go in there, but we met right at the corner of Central Park. And that's the first place that we hung out and visited. Oh, really? I didn't, yep. I don't remember. I don't remember that. That's how far back it goes. Cause that's almost 20 years, right? Mm -hmm. Do you think that there's a relationship between the anxieties around the physical border and also the borders of desire? It's sort of like a, a timelessness, meaning like the place where I grew up. And I think Aaron, I've said this to you before. It's um, it's so slow to adapt that I can sometimes feel, you know, when I return home where my family is, you know, they're still there. It can feel um, like returning to the closet um, because the 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 stresses and the and the forces are so much more palpable um, of how much more dangerous it is, you know, for for queer queer kids especially in place like the valley i mean i don't um so yeah i mean to answer your question james it's it's you know it's it's a pretty fixed line in places like like the valley and so things which might seem kind of simple um not simple but um uh like the hand job in the theater in one of the stories mm -hmm. might seem like it, that's not a huge deal but in a context of of a of a valley town, yeah, that is that is a major deal. Your characters give you gumption. I think one day this will be a story, so it's okay to do it. I do. I totally do. I've gone out at 3 a.m. in Pittsburgh and bought poppers for a guy who wanted me to lick his jockstrap, and I thought one day this will be a story. <laughs> I listen. I have been in those moments where I I remember. Oh, do I tell these stories or not? I'm well, I'll, I'll take them out. I mean, you this can is take them out, take girl. Them out. Don't yeah. worry. I would Look, okay, well, here's here's one that's just, you know, the, my capacity for being melodramatic. I remember bringing a guy home um, in Hell's Kitchen. That's where I lived in New York. Um, and it was just a great time. And he leaves about 3.30. And we didn't exchange numbers. And I was trying to play it cool. And 10 minutes later, I changed my mind and I ran out of the apartment towards the subway station, you know, hoping to catch him. Carrie Bradshaw. It's, it's, the, it's the dumbest, <laughs> the dumbest shit that I'd ever done in my life. It's like, you put your heels on? You put your heels on? Or did you... <laughs> Diana, get my bag. It was yes, one of those moments. Yes. yes. And I like, I still can't, I still can't believe I, I did that. Like, what was I overcome by? You know that. God, did you catch him? What's that? Did you catch him? No, no, of oh, course not. Moves. 
It moves so fast in New it's, York. It's so funny because that's exactly how your stories end right? in these like gray <laughs> spaces where I'm like, does the car come back? Uh, who called the police? Right. Mm-hmm. Like, and, and, you know, I mean, you have a heavy suspicion, right? Um, and I love that your stories do that because they, they haunt, they turn in your mind. Manuel running outside and the man being gone there would still be one more paragraph where we see Manuel standing there in the high hills. Seriously. Like, like I'm making up the shoes, but no, I think your story, he would be gone, but there would be one more paragraph where we get to witness all of it from Mm. like a little bit step back. Like we'd see the city and we'd see your sad white shoes, which I know your character had him obsessed with those white high heels. (laughs) I can see those white high heels. I know. (laughs) And then when they traded shoes and she rolls up her jeans a little bit with the high heels on, I could see that outfit. I love her man's like, you aren't wearing those shoes here anymore. (laughs) (laughs) Just trying to do a nice thing. Just trying to do a nice thing, fucker. You know, let's hear a little bit of the consequences. Come, Mauricio ordered, turning west when they hit the edge of the mall and they walked by the Canada shoe store in the Mexican record shop to the Crest Cinema on the corner. The movie's already started, the young woman in the booth said, looking at both of them for a moment before sliding the tickets through the mouse hole. The lobby was empty by then, the carpet muffling everything except the bubbling juice fountain and the hum of the air conditioning. Mauricio felt more at ease, and they made their way past the closed double doors into the theater, where, eyes adjusting to the sudden darkness, he felt Biko's small hand reach out for his in the dark as they sought out seats in the back. He couldn't tell how many people were in the theater, not many though, and so he let Biko's hand remain in his, too soft to the touch and damp from the walk outside. It was a loud comedy, a Mexican pratfaller whose name he couldn't remember, and then the clatter of overturned restaurant tables and policemen slipping into muddy street puddles, and a loudmouthed kid who made the dark theater choke with laughter. Mauricio felt Biko's hand reach over to his belt buckle, his fingers unzipping his pants and slipping inside. Did it matter if the dark theater could hear the squeak of the vinyl seats the Woolworths bag crinkling. At first, Mauricio thought it did, it did matter. Two men who walked into a theater in the middle of the day, one of them with brassy dyed hair, the other one older and who should know better. But then it didn't matter, and the hinges of his chair creaked as he spread his legs and let Pico do what he wanted. When Pico felt him start to come, he gripped Mauricio harder and let out a little laugh of triumph, a giggle almost. Mauricio moved to get Biko's hand out of his pants, afraid someone would finally turn around to see them. But Biko held firm, drawing his fingers around the stickiness and grinning at him. Nothing was funny on the screen, but it didn't matter. That's how life was, Mauricio thought, the things that brought some people to laughter. I love that. And don't think that I didn't catch the bubbling fountain before they walked in. I was like a little foreshadowing. <laughs> yeah. What you see in the dark. Well, also, yeah. also um, bringing in like 
the the pratfalls on the screen too and the laughter and yeah but like the shame right off the bat the woman at the window is like i know what you're going in there to do i mean just the shame and how you just push through it because you need dick yeah (laughs) that's been my life that's been my life story just do it anyway two please <laughs> Thank you for for being so generous and and as a friend as a writer as a human being as a teacher I just uh I love your generosity. Well, if James will crawl out of your butt for a second, then I will also <laughs> say that I love you. We're friends and I love you and I'm so glad you came on the show and gave me a chance to ask you like so many writing questions that we don't really get to discuss because He's really tricky at like, at next thing you know, you've been talking, you're so thirsty and you've been talking for an hour <laughs> and he knows everything about you. Mm-hmm. Um, so thank you for coming on the show with us. No, it's been a complete pleasure. And as I told you, I was very nervous, um, you know, just knowing that I was going to be chatting with, with you in your realm. So I'm really happy that you invited me to be part of it. It's really special. Thank you. We were gentle. Welcome to the fact check, the facty. And uh, do you did did you have a fact you wanted to check? I don't think so. <laughs> it was like <laughs> I was thinking, like I was like, yeah, no, I don't think so. So Manuel is right that David Means, who writes mostly short story collections, has one novel. It's called Histopia. It was published in 2016 by Faber and Faber. And Histopia is spelled H-Y-S, not H-I-S. That's my novel. <laughs> mm. You know, one thing I looked up too, because I thought I had it, Stuart Dybeck, um actually has a book of poetry with the Pitt Poetry Series. His first book was Brass Knuckles. Mm-hmm. Then he had another one, I believe, with FSG. And then one as recent as 2006. But yeah. he pretty much does just write short stories. Yeah. Otherwise, but he's by he's by genre. Mm-hmm. Or does he try? Does he also do? Does he also do a novel? Oh my gosh! Well, me, I guess he does, right? So yeah. he's Stuart Tribeck. <laughs> oh, nicely done! Oh, wow. Thank you. Love mm. it. Um, and that was really the only other thing I could find from the episode. Um, Manuel reads from his story Compromisos, which you can read in its entirety on Electric Lit, and we will put that link in the show notes and i guess that's all we have hey everyone if you enjoyed today's breaking form please follow us on twitter and instagram at breaking form pod review us with five stars on apple and we'd love it if you'd support us by buying our books links are in the show notes and remember we're not for everyone you please. <laughs>